This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present three Democratic candidates for the state legislature from the 16th Legislative District. Join us for a conversation with Danielle Garby-Reeser, Francis Quattle, and Carly Coburn. This conversation was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, July 21st. Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall. My name is Stephen Cox. I am the host of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. I want to say a big thank you to the Washington Indivisible Network and especially Julie Onjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And a very special thanks to Louise Pate for helping out tonight. And thanks to all of you for joining us, whether you are joining us live on the broadcast tonight or are listening via the podcast or are listening on one of the many terrestrial radio stations here in Washington that carries the podcast. I'm so glad that you were with us. Before we get started, I want to acknowledge that we live and work on the ancestral homelands of many indigenous peoples throughout the Pacific Northwest. We wish to express our deepest respect and gratitude for our indigenous neighbors for their enduring care and protection of our shared lands and waterways. Tonight, we are going to be speaking with three wonderful candidates. We're so excited to be talking with them. Uh, They are running for the state legislature in the 16th legislative district. This is a district that includes Columbia and Walla Walla counties, most of southern Benton County and Pasco in Franklin County. So here is how tonight's going to go. We are going to begin by having each candidate introduce herself, and then we will proceed to a slate of platform questions. After that, I'm going to have a few questions that are specific to each candidate. Because we only have an hour to do this, I have asked the candidates to limit their answers to 90 seconds. I will be timing on this end. Uh, if you see me hold up a pen, that means your, your time is, is, is drawing close. Um, and we will do our best to get to any questions that you add into the chat bar this evening. So please enter any questions that you have as we go along. So with that, let us meet our candidates. Danielle Garby-Reeser was recently CEO of Sherwood Trust and is a former U.S. State Department Foreign Service Officer. Her diplomatic assignments included tours at the National Security Council in the Obama administration and on the staff of then-Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. She is running for state senate. Frances Quattle has worked as a clinical nurse for 22 years and quality analyst for four years at Providence St. Mary Medical Center. For 10 years prior, she provided direct patient care as an RM. She has also served on the St. Mary Community Ministry Board since 2015 and three years on the City of Walla Walla Bicycle Pedestrian Advisory Council. She is running for representative in position one. Carly Coburn is first vice chair of the Franklin County and 16th LD Democrats. She has also served on the platform committee of the LPO, as well as having formerly been the chair of the elections committee. She is also founder of the Tri-City Disability Day of Mourning, and she is running for representative in position two. So Danielle Garby-Reeser, Francis Quarrell, and Carly Coburn, welcome to you all. It is so great to have all of you with us tonight. Thank you so much. So, Danielle, I want to start with you. So uh, introduce yourself, if you will. Talk a little bit about some of your life experiences and and your achievements and how those have prepared you for the job of state senator. Thank you all so much for being here. I am originally from Moses Lake, so deep roots here in eastern Washington. I love this part of the state, and I grew up with a family that really stressed service through my grandfather's military career and community involvement. I first came down to Walla Walla because I received a scholarship to attend Whitman, and there I met my first diplomat that made me think that could be a way I could give back to our country, and I was incredibly fortunate to become a diplomat My first day on the job was September 10th, 2001. So it was an incredibly challenging time to get into our government. And it was in the Republican administration. And so as you noted, I worked with Condoleezza Rice. I then later worked in the Obama White House twice. And I really saw what it means to put our country first, that we don't have to always be as partisan and that we have strong values and the ability to negotiate and find good solutions and best ideas from all sides but I really miss my family. And so in 2015, I moved back here to Walla Walla and became CEO of Sherwood Trust, which is a local nonprofit that invests in the community to create jobs and build community infrastructure. And I just saw amazing community volunteers throughout our district tackling 
big challenges like early learning, affordable health care, ending youth homelessness. And I saw that they needed a stronger voice in Olympia. Right now, Stefan, there are no Democrats from all of rural Eastern Washington in our state legislature. The three of us running are one of only two districts where there are all three female candidates and we have real chances to flip these red seats. So I'm running, I'm married to a farmer, I understand what our communities need and I really wanna be in the room where decisions will be made about the resources our communities need to thrive. Thank you for that. Uh, you've touched on so much of what we will get to um, through the latter portion of our, our time to, uh, together here tonight. Francis Quattle, let's uh, turn to you. Uh, give us a moment, if you will, and just introduce yourself. Talk about how your life experience and achievements have prepared you for the job of representative. Thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, and thank you to the Washington Indivisible Network. My name is Francis Quattle. I'm the representative candidate for position one from the 16th legislative district. I was born in Walla Walla. I was raised on a farm in Tushi and I graduated from WSU. I've been a registered nurse working in healthcare for 37 years, 10 years in direct patient care, 22 years as a clinical leader at uh, at St. Mary Medical Center. And since 2015, I've been working in the quality department as an analyst. I've been married to Ron Kammer for 30 years. I'm step-parent to his two children, and we have two children. People have asked me, can a nurse be a good and effective legislator? And in simple terms, yes. Nurses listen and assess to identify a problem. They make a plan, they execute the plan, and they evaluate if it was effective. They often work in teams, which requires good communication skills, and sometimes work by themselves, such as a night shift. They always are working to make things better for a person, a patient. They're working to make things better, not perfect, but better. In these extraordinary times, we need legislators in Olympia to work hard, solve problems, and make difficult decisions, but also know how to care for people. That is what I've done my entire life. I'd like to take that skill set to Olympia. I will listen to my constituents and my colleagues. I will work through an issue and I will make things better. I would respectfully ask for your vote in August and November, and I'm happy to be here this evening to take your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Francis Quattle. Uh, let's turn to Carly Coburn now. Uh, introduce yourself, if you would please, and talk about how your life experience and your achievements have prepared you for the job of representative. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, Indivisible putting this on. Uh, my name is Carly Coburn. I'm running for the uh, second house seat uh, partner with Francis. Um, I've been married for over 11 years. I um, was a caregiver when I was younger, so I know a lot about what use, what the medical uh, landscape used to be before the ACA, what it's been after as a uh, caregiver and as a patient. Um, like you mentioned, I am on multiple committees. I also serve on several uh, 501c3 nonprofit boards. And I have always been, since I got involved locally in the Tri-Cities, I have managed to and have consistently different uh, activities and uh, different movements that uh, we need here. Uh, One of the ones I'm most proud of is Disability Day of Mourning. Uh, Tri-Cities is the only uh, place in Washington who has consistently held uh, that vigil for the last two years in a row. I have been involved in politics for uh, several years now um, on both the partisan and nonpartisan level. And uh, I care very much about policy. I watch policy. Uh, I've written resolutions for the Washington State Democratic Central Committee to support uh, ending subminimum wage for disability. Uh, for disabled folks. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. 
Okay, thank you. And thanks thanks to all of you again for joining us uh, this evening. I want to jump in with some platform questions for all of you. And I want to start with the state's COVID response. Because uh, right now we are seeing a dramatic spike in COVID cases across the state, particularly on your side, on the eastern side of the state, uh, which has paused the phased reopening. Both Benton and Franklin counties are still in a modified phase one. Uh, Francis, you're a nurse, so I want to start with you. From a public health standpoint, what do you feel that we should be doing in the state better to address this crisis? Thank you. That certainly is the topic and the question of the day, isn't it? This is the most impactful and serious public health emergency I have witnessed in my life. My first thought is that of empathy and a wish for rest and healing to the people who have been victims of coronavirus, to the families and the friends of loved ones who have um, to, to, to the families and friends who have lost loved ones, my sincere condolences. For those who feel lucky that they're healthy, but because they have not been impacted physically by this pandemic, but are struggling nonetheless with financial and economic fragility, I see you and I understand the anxiety of this moment. I believe in science. I trust those at the state, local, and federal level who are working to keep us healthy, and I trust their recommendations. State government officials must lead by example. They must maintain disciplined communication with local governments and continually assess and address needs. I think that would be the one aspect of Governor Inslee's response that could, uh, could have been better. Uh, a plan is only as good as the communication um, around it, and it's, it needs to be reliable and consistent, and I think there could have been some improvements with that. State government must continue to support public health services and healthcare systems who are on the front line of this pandemic. We must continue to affirm local health departments to enforce changes to behavior that are in both, um, to, that are key to both our health and economic recovery. Just today, I'm almost done. Just today it was reported that um, by the Department of Health that Yakima County has achieved about a 95% mass compliance rate and they attribute that to their significant improvement in the response to the pandemic. To the hardest hit by the virus are low income neighbors, marginalized communities and the poor. The government needs to take into consideration the disproportionate impact that this pandemic has had on them. Thank you so much. Um, and I, I will just say, uh, I, I regret that I have to keep everybody to a time limit tonight, but there's so much ground to cover. So I'm, I really am going to ask that people keep their responses to about 90 seconds. Carly, let's turn to you. Same question. What do you feel that we could be doing in the state right now to better address the, uh, the pandemic crisis that is, that is currently spiking? Um, yeah, so it is pretty bad here. Uh, I live in Pasco, so I've been uh, I've pretty much been, for the most part, quarantined uh, since March 16th. I rarely leave the house, um, and it's been real rough. Um, I come from a family who has dealt with chronic illnesses, and so one of the things that I especially see right now that's happening because the uh, Latina and Latino and Latinx community and the Black community are being most affected by uh, COVID-19 is that we, I mean, just as we have made it so that you don't get charged for a COVID-19 test, um, we need to make it so that you're not being charged for your COVID-19 treatment. I know it sounds really out there, really wild, but just last month, uh, earlier this month, there was a gentleman who was released. He survived COVID-19. And he went home with a $1.1 million hospital bill that he still had to pay. Um, we need to be giving, that's the only way to give equitable treatment is to make it accessible to everyone and to not put a limit on who can and can't access it because this year they didn't think, or you know, last year they didn't think they'd get sick at all. So they decided not to buy insurance. Thank you. Same question to you, Danielle. What do you feel that we could be doing differently? What should we be doing differently in the state right now to address this crisis? When we started responding to the crisis, there really was a one-size-fits-all approach. And this was, on our least favorite word, unprecedented crisis. So 
people responded with what they knew. But that really didn't work for Eastern Washington. We were weeks behind the actual outbreak. And that meant people were frustrated being asked to do things that didn't make sense here. And then it caught up with us and it really caught up with us. And so we need to keep tailoring our solutions to what's happening as well as we can on the ground working with local officials. And the other piece we have to do is really look to source and surge PPE equipment. We're hearing from small business owners, like a hair salon I talked to in the Tri-Cities, they were ready to open and approved to open at one point, but couldn't find gloves. And so I don't want that to be a hindrance for people to operate safely as to make sure whether it's at your small business, at your hospital, at our schools, people will need that equipment and it will be much more cost effective for everyone if we source it in larger supplies. So as my uh, co-colleagues here have said, just a huge shout out to everyone who's been enduring incredible difficulties over the last few months, people who've stepped up to help their neighbors, their family members. We have union members watching tonight. You've done tremendous work to help each other in our neighborhoods, and we're proud to be representing this region and all the people coming together to keep each other masked up so we can open up. Yeah, you're talking about the balance between uh, public health concerns and economic concerns. And so let's let's, you know, kind of continue down that that trail a little bit. We know that the economic impact is going to be felt for many years to come. And I'm wondering how you think about this problem, Danielle. We'll start with you on this and how you would work at the legislative level to get the economy of the 16th and also the state back on its feet. Well, part of how I see the problem, I mean, we're looking at a $9 billion deficit under current projections between now and 2023. And so it's going to take a mix of measures to adapt to that. And first, we have to be advocating with federal partners to get full funding. There's a proposal circulating in D.C. now to help fund states, counties, and cities. We need that money and help. Then we need to look at what new funding was approved and work collaboratively with the state to see what new funding might need to be deferred. And then look really to some creative partnerships. And that's something I was proud to work on in philanthropy, where we can bring government businesses and philanthropy to the table to address some of those key needs and figure out what tough decisions we have to make. The main thing I want to be guided by is to not cut like we did in 2008 in ways that just create more expensive problems later. We did that on mental health. We did that on housing. And we're paying for those problems. And they've only compounded now in the last few months. We need to have smart, strategic, long-term budget making. Yeah, you're talking about austerity budgets. And uh, I think the consensus was that they did not serve the last time around. Uh, So put a pin in that because we'll return to that question in just a moment. Uh, Francis, let's bring you into the discussion on this. How do you think about the problem of the economic impact uh, and how we uh, as a state, how the legislature can work to get the economy back on its feet in the years to come? The most impactful step in creating a thriving economy and uh, recovery is at this point, at this time to comply with the regulations from the State Department of Health and the federal recommendations related to COVID, mitigating the spread, supporting public health processes. Public health is job one. If evidence-based steps are skipped and the spread of the disease goes unchecked, it may strain or overwhelm healthcare systems, creating a cascade of human tragedy. Through this process, when we have successfully made progress in flattening the curve and decreasing the percent positive rate, We can then continue to increase activity and focus on our our attention on community recovery through Safe Start Washington. The state government must work with local municipalities to identify needs and support growth and development. We would be wise to to consider variances to current rules or ordinances in these extraordinary times, and I would advocate to energize grant writing and other opportunities for funding sources. Also, I would be an advocate and a loud voice to expand business um, expanded business support from the state and the federal programs. Thank you. Thank you. Carly, uh, same question then to you. How do we get the state back on its feet uh, in the wake of really, as, uh, as Danielle said, a word we hate to use, an unprecedented pandemic? Um, I think in an unprecedented time, it's the best time for un- uh, unprecedented ideas. 
Um, I agree with uh, Francis and Danielle about the grants, making sure that we're letting uh, our small businesses in the area know, hey, you can apply for this because they don't know all the time what they can apply for. But I also believe it strongly believe on a 1% tax on the 1% of businesses and people. What I'm talking about is multi-billionaires, multi-millionaires, people who will not feel this 1% when it goes to taxes. And these are people and businesses, quite very frequently businesses that uh, have paid zero taxes in the last two years to our state, but operate within our state. Um, they need to be pitching in their fair share. Uh, I am considered a low-income person. I live paycheck to paycheck. And I know that I paid more taxes this year or last year and this year so far uh, than Amazon has paid in the last two or three years. And this is not something that is equitable. Um, you know, some people say, oh, well, the world's not fair, but it should be. So in this unprecedented time, we should be trying something unprecedented and new. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, do hold that thought because I have a very specific question about our very lopsided tax system here in the state down the pike. Um, and Danielle was mentioning earlier uh, about our budget shortfalls in excess of $8.8 billion uh, expected over the next three years. There's some very tough choices ahead. This brings us to our first audience question. Jeffrey asks, and Carly, we'll stay with you on this. Will you work with county governments to address budget shortfalls on a local level? Yes, I would. I feel that it's kind of our duty as state legislators not to just make laws for the state, but I mean, we're being, we're running to represent a specific district. And so we should be checking in with the counties, even the cities in our district. We should be making sure that they're doing okay and checking to see what they need, if they need anything, and how we can assist them in getting it at the state, like at the state level so that we can help them. Same question to you, Danielle, and this does touch on what we were talking about earlier with the, with the budget shortfall. Um, that Jeffrey asks, will you work with county governments to address budget shortfalls at the local level? It's really critical in our region because most of our counties have far less population than the west side. So it's a real frustration that Olympia will decide something which sounds like a great policy, but it doesn't come with funding. So all these unfunded mandates come down onto our counties, which have a much smaller tax base to provide those services. Columbia County has just over 4,000 people. They have to provide full court services, health and medical services, government services, and it's expensive. Most of our counties here had a huge challenge. We had big floods in February and they were wiped out in funding in our small town and county budgets in Waitsburg of Walla Walla County and over in Dayton and Columbia County. And that required a big lift from the state as well as the federal government to get those funds back in those coffers. And being aware of those needs and being an advocate to fight for what our counties need, which is both funding as well as some common sense about making sure we don't have so many unfunded mandates that we just can't provide here in Eastern Washington. Well, the same question to you, uh, Francis, and this, you know, continuing on uh, here with our, our budget shortfalls. Um, will you, uh, as Jeffrey is asking, work with the county governments to address the budget shortfalls that are happening at the local level? The upcoming budget cycle will certainly be challenging. I believe the budget is a moral document and absolutely should be craft, crafted with local input. I learned fiscal responsibility from my conservative parents and take very serious the notion of spending someone else's money. I will always keep in the front of my mind the poor and vulnerable neighbors, those who live in the margins and who are easily forgotten. They will not be forgotten by me. We are required to fund programs per the Washington State Constitution. Public education will have priority in our appropriation process. The burden of the difficult decisions around funding non-mandatory programs must be created with equity in mind. One size does not fit all. And lastly, I would do all of this with the intent of preserving our rainy day fund. 
Thank you for that. I'm going to switch over to something that may seem unrelated, but I think in preparation for our discussion here tonight, it came up quite a bit, and that is broadband. We have seen just how crucial broadband access has become during the pandemic to things like education, healthcare, employment. But people, many people in parts of the 16th, in, in particular rural areas, live in so-called broadband deserts, meaning they, the broadband is uneven or it's even non-existent. Uh, Danielle, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. How do you frame the problem in your mind, and how would you like to see this inequity addressed? What I've seen, and we saw it before in our communities, but it became so much more acute in the last several months is broadband is a public service good. And so when it wasn't available to school districts to provide online school, when it wasn't available for businesses here, and when you look across our big, broad rural district, there are pockets, especially in Columbia County, that have had a harder time with infrastructure. And even if the infrastructure is there, that last mile of getting it to someone's home or making sure a family has the means to have the internet connectivity or that the kids had hardware. And our school districts in particular worked so hard to get those resources out. And we need to have that same kind of urgency around looking at this as an economic development tool and whether it's the broadband side or even the next generation technologies, is it 5G or other? Our communities need sound infrastructure for all the ways that we need to get goods and people to market and stay connected to each other. Carly, same question to you. Uh, how do you address these, these broadband deserts uh, at a time when broadband is really more vital than ever? Um, I think that a lot of people don't realize that at this point in time and in history, um, computers, cell phones, access to the internet, this is no longer a luxury or uh, something that you know you don't have to live with. This is something that everyone needs. If you don't have a job, having a cell phone can get you a job. So it is really vital that we do have broadband throughout the whole 16th and that everyone has access because we also, I mean, we know what OSPI has put out regarding starting school next year, but things could happen and change. And if kids are home again a whole year, it is once again inequitable and not right for some kids who are based in a, you know, in Walla Walla to be able to access the internet and do their studies, but kids in Columbia County can't. So it really needs to kind of, in the same way that uh, municipalities, cities, towns have uh, created their own PUDs, there needs to be the same thing with broadband. Um, whether And it would probably need to be boosted slash helped um, to get up and starting by the state. But I think that it's really important that we uh, push for broadband to be a public um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And uh, PUD stands for Public Utility District. Um, I will ask the yeah. same question of you, Francis. We know how important broadband is right now, and we know that there are those who have access to it, and there are those who don't. Uh, how would you like to see that inequity addressed in, in the 16th LD? Thank you. Uh, access to reliable and high-quality broadband service is essential, almost like infrastructure is considered essential to all counties and districts in the state. This has been identified already in a bipartisan manner in Olympia. Work has been started and a statewide broadband office was established in 2019, which would apply for federal funding or grants and encourage public-private partnerships to deploy broadband services. Although this was established with the economic development in mind, I see broadband as a critical tool to provide telemedicine services to rural communities and as an adjunct to in-school education opportunities. I work with several telemedicine services and with the appropriate support and training, they have the potential to greatly enhance health and mental health care. The Brookings Institute reminded us, quote, two decades into the new millennium, the digitalization of America li American life is no longer striking. It is ordinary. I want to talk next about affordable housing in uh, in your district. 
Um, there is a shortage generally in Washington, but I learned from talking with all of you that it's uh, particularly acute in parts of the 16th with vacancy rates as low as 2% in the Tri-Cities. Um, Francis, let's stay with you on this. What are some ways to create more accessible and affordable housing in the 16th? Is it building? Is it repurposing? How do you see it? Yeah, I believe that housing is a moral imperative. The absence of a safe home creates emotional trauma and can devastate a person or a family. To meet the needs of local communities, the state government must work with them and nonprofit private organizations to identify short and long-term goals. We need to hear the people who are on the ground doing the housing work. These efforts could be coordinated with stakeholders such as the Washington Housing Alliance Action Fund. According to the Department of Commerce, the increased number of homeless people in Washington is impacted by the rising cost of housing. Building more affordable housing will hopefully result in a decrease in the number of homeless people. I will advocate to fully fund the Department of Commerce programs that are in place already, and I would support the um, eviction rent assistance program that was funded through the CARES Act to provide short-term program to provide short-term assistance for people who need relief. That's scheduled to expire in December, and the way things are looking, I would advocate for extending that um, program. Carly, uh, I'll aim the the question at you. How would you tackle? the affordable housing shortage. I mean, this is really one of the most intractable problems, this and, and homelessness. And, and as uh, Francis is mentioning, they do go hand in hand uh, here that we have to face in Washington. How would you go about addressing it? Um, so I believe that making sure that cities are leaving uh, the option open for multiple dwellings on a single lot, like being able to have a house and then a tiny house. Um, that is something that has been explored by different cities and has shown to work. Um, trans, uh, doing, um, using transitional housing, the tiny house, houses as transitional housing has shown to work. And one thing that we need to do is, um, I, I mean, there's, uh, condos go up and there are luxury condos that are multiple thousands of dollars. And this is just something that, you know, even I can't, I can't afford something like that. I can't even pay a thousand dollars for my rent. I, it, I, I say this because I am the average renter, um, and a lower income renter who has to deal with this problem. There's been times that I've gotten a 20 day vacator notice, not because I did anything, but because I had an emotional support animal, uh, which is protected under the equal housing rights. Um, and it, I had a week when I finally found a place and I had to take it sight unseen and I didn't get to nothing. I had to sign the lease then because um, in certain locations here in the Tri-Cities, rent changes on the daily. Uh, so you call them one day and you're like, hey, I'm interested in this apartment. And if you want to say, well, I want to think about it, they'll be like, okay, but it's going to be higher tomorrow. And that's something that we need to stop. And I also believe in ending the, um, sorry, uh, ending the uh, the restriction on uh, freezing rent, because that is something that would help with this COVID situation as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Danielle, you know, I'm I'm inclined to ask you uh, uh, sort of a more philosophical bent to this question in terms of how you see the problem. Why is this so intractable? And then what are some of the solutions that you would bring to the table in the legislature? From how I see it here in our district and the kinds of stories I've heard from people across the district in the last few months, one of the key issues that we haven't otherwise talked about is the labor supply to build the housing. So we talked about the zoning, we talked about just economic uncertainty as a whole, but if we had more available units across the district, it would drive down prices. And so that to be able to do that, we need to get more people into the trades. And we have just great partnerships that have been on the books historically with community colleges or with union apprenticeship programs. And a number of those have been cut in recent years. And we're seeing a real retirement 
boom among people in trades from plumbers, electricians, a whole range of jobs. Those are really good paying jobs. There are huge needs in our communities, and we need to be encouraging our high school students or people who want to retrain to new jobs to consider those because having an affordable home and a place to call home is everything. And right now, as people are stuck at home, if home is not safe, if home is precarious, that's adding another level of emotional stress onto an already difficult economic time. And so the more we think about this holistically and really put at the center the kind of job and economic creation that can solve this for the long term, I think the better off our communities will be. I want to thank all of you, by the way, for just incredibly thoughtful answers on what is just a very, very difficult problem. Um, let's talk next about health care. The number of people lacking health care in, in Washington is presently over 700,000, according to recent figures by the Office of Financial Management. Let's talk about a pathway to access to affordable health care for all Washingtonians. Danielle, how do you envision that? How do we get there? I've really been impressed with the steps that Washington has taken so far to make a much broader range of healthcare options available to people as a whole. And that's we'll have Cascade Care coming online. And so having an affordable health insurance program is key. And it should not be tied to your job alone, because as we've seen both in this crisis, but really before, I mean, I stepped down from my job at Sherwood Trust so that I could run without having a conflict of interest around making decisions on grants when I was also asking people for their votes, which please vote by August 4th. And but I realized in doing that, I was making a choice about health insurance and that stress of, can I go start a new job or start this business that's been somebody's idea? You shouldn't have to make those trade-offs. That health care should be there. And no one should have to defer their health care choices because they can't afford them. And you shouldn't have an insurance company deciding what you, health care you should be allowed to have when your doctor is the one who should say that. In our rural regions, the other piece that we just really have to keep at the center is that it's really hard for us to attract providers out here. And we have especially an amazing critical care hospital in Dayton, Washington, and they've just worked tremendously to keep the hospital running, to be there, because time matters on so many healthcare issues. If your hospital is an hour or more away, that could be the difference of life and death. And so keeping the hospitals whole, keeping the providers there so that we have that accessibility is going to be key. Francis, I'm especially keen to get your take on this as somebody who spent her entire career in healthcare. How do you see the pathway to access to affordable healthcare for all Washingtonians? Healthcare is a basic human right. I will work to ensure all citizens have access to the high quality and affordable care they deserve. I have worked in healthcare for 37 years and I'm, I am inspired by so much, but I've also witnessed the confounding nature of healthcare processes and understand the challenges of navigating through them. The cost and sheer frustration is shameful. Until the government, the federal government moves to a universal system, I will focus my attention on fully funding Apple Care and consider eligibility as a means of expanding coverage. I would, ask, I would advocate for greater oversight of pharmaceutical companies and medical device manufacturers to make these critical items more affordable. I would advocate to trans I would advocate to transition from a for-profit system to a system that incentivizes health. This is the, one of the most complicated and critical social issues of our times. We should look to other countries for good ideas and be brave, not political, in our approach to promote health and mental health care for all. Carly, same basic question to you then. Uh, how do you envision the pathway to affordable health care for all Washingtonians? Well, the very most simplest answer is that we do as California did and we create our own a single-payer healthcare system through the state of Washington. That's the very most direct and uh, truthful answer from myself. Um, I am a member of the Franklin County Democrats. We endorsed Whole Washington, which is an initiative that seeks to bring uh, universal healthcare to Washington State. Um, so I, I voted in that uh, decision, and I voted yes. Um, I don't hide the fact that I, 
I'm somewhat, I'm disabled. So I have to go through the medical system all the time, choosing an insurance. It's an ordeal every time me and my spouse have to sit down and do across the lines. Like, is this one okay? Is this one okay? And it's hard. Nothing. And it was even harder before the ACA, which is a federal thing. So, you know, I, I once went to try and get medical care before the ACA. And I had the DSHS uh, uh, employee laugh, toss my application to the side and tell me to come back when I was pregnant. Because that was the only way that women could get on Medicare at that time. This was in the uh, just before 2010. So it's not that long ago when this happened. So we need to be, in my view, fighting for a single payer healthcare system because that's how we're going to get everyone equitable care. That's how everyone gets treated. But if it has to go at a slower pace, I would be accepting of working towards a public buy-in option while still looking towards wanting to bring in universal health care. I want to talk about something else that is very top of mind for people, and that is the climate crisis. But since this is an agricultural district, I will ask about this from a farming perspective. And uh, Danielle, we'll start with you. We know that climate change is impacting uh, planting patterns and access to water, and it's disrupting local economies. But we also know that farmers often push back against regulation on carbon and water usage. And I'm going to frame this question by saying uh, I, I would like you to specifically address climate issues on this because we do have uh, a, a question coming down the pike that is specifically about protecting family farms. But I'm wondering, um, as somebody who is married to a fifth generation farmer, how do you balance the imperative to protect the climate with the needs of farmers in the 16th? I think there's a win-win solution here because any farmer you meet is the most practical, resilient person you know. They know the weather and they know it's changing and it's been more extreme in recent years. We've had massive challenges from fires. We've had two floods and a drought this year. And so being able to adapt in that environment is key. And many of them are already adapting in ways that are great for the climate. So it's learning from what they're doing on the ground with cover crops and healthy soils and how that can translate. It's partnering with them. And it's understanding that for a lot of our crops that are, you're a product taker, not a price maker, uh, you are worried about every little margin and any additional cost. So when we can look at climate solutions that save costs for farmers and don't add to their bottom line, it will be much easier to adapt them. We also, as we think about the whole food cycle out here and you know, there's, we have a, we're growing wheat right now, but we have lots of tree fruit and other crops across the district. There are a number of growers, say in the grape industry, who look at their whole supply chain and they are innovating in ways that are great for climate. We had one winery at a ag and climate convention back in January say, they realized that there was a huge carbon footprint from the glass bottles that they bought in France. They realized that they could source them closer to home, have less of a carbon footprint, it was a thinner bottle, cost them less, and it was made in Washington state. That's a win. The other piece of that is even on recycling. We do not have glass recycling in Walla Walla County, even though we make all these bottles of wine. So there are some real climate solutions and some practical management that we can learn from the best things happening on the ground here and elsewhere in our state and create partnerships that will make meaningful change so that we have clean water, clean air, and healthy soils for all of us for many more generations to come. Francis, you grew up on a farm, so I'm uh, also curious to get your take on this. How do you see the balance between the imperative to uh, protect the climate, which we obviously must do, with the needs of farmers in your district? My knowledge around agriculture is both sentimental and real life. I understand that the success of farming is linked to production up and downstream from the farm, including people involved in the harvest, the transportation, and the processing. Any discussion around agriculture and the environmental needs will need to be considered in a holistic manner, aware that the impact will be wide. The only way to bring together agriculture and agri representatives from agriculture and environmental groups is to bring together representatives from agriculture and environmental groups. 
We need to sit down at the table, a table, or on a Zoom meeting, find common goals, show respect for each other, and work through the issues. It seems to me that 2019 was not the best of years for agriculture related to the trade debates with China and others. Coming out of this, farmers were hit with this pandemic and market insecurity. I am deeply concerned about our farmers who have sustained several blows. We need to listen and support agriculture and environmental interests and promote a healthy environment for our state because the two really are inextricably linked. Curious also how you see it, Carly. Uh, There is a balance in your district between uh, protecting the climate and the needs of what is one of the biggest industries in the 16th. How do you break that balance down? Um, So to me, they're kind of circular. Uh, You know, the farmers need and know that climate change is happening. And so they know that we need to fix that so that there aren't more droughts, so that we're not having um, fire after fire after fire uh, in our district or near our district. Um, it's, I didn't grow up in a farming community or farming like Francis and Danielle did, but I did grow up in rural areas. And I know that, you know, one bad crop can you know that can be it and so i uh i want to acknowledge that and i agree with francis that we need to be able to hear from the farmers directly about what they need um and make sure that they are getting support from us and that we're helping them uh not necessarily through um laws but at least guidance on ways that if they want, this is how you can reduce your carbon footprint by doing X, Y, or Z, much like Danielle mentioned, the winery did. So maybe us helping them being able to find these solutions that can both make them greener and save them money, it becomes again a win-win. You brought up the China trade agreement, and I I did say that there was going to be a question about protecting family farms. Uh, International trade agreements Um, fair trade agreements uh, at the federal level we know are negatively impacting our farmers here in the state. Um, Carly, let's stay with you on this. What, if anything, do you think can be done at the state legislature level to help farmers out here? I very honestly do not know what could be done. I would really love to hear and to learn and know what could be done. Um, I know that there's only so far we can go before federal federally will be pressed back against, but this could potentially even be something uh, allowing states to make trade agreements uh, internationally could potentially be a lawsuit up to the Supreme Court if someone wanted to do that. I could see that happening. And then if it went to the Supreme Court, it would then be fully decided whether our state is or is not allowed to make their own international trade agreement. So same question to you, uh, Danielle, and, and we've seen this uh, hurt our local farmers at the international level, and we wonder what can be done at the state level. How do you see the problem, and, and where do you think Olympia can intervene here? There are some key roles that the lieutenant governor plays and the Department of Commerce play in advocating, um, along with the growers associations or other groups, for our products and getting them to markets overseas. So some of that is relationship building that happens here at the state. It was part of the work I was also able to do on the other side when I was with the State Department. And so I would be excited to help do that if I'm elected and sent to Olympia. The other way we can all help uh, our farmers, and part of it is an international issue, is around water. And the Columbia River is a major source of waterfall for all of Eastern Washington. It's a negotiated river with Canada. So there's an international treaty on the water use. And as we think about water holistically, you know, there's some real challenges in our district around people who want to bottle and sell their water, around private equity interests wanting to come into our state and buy up water rights across Eastern Washington. And these are the kinds of issues that if we pay more attention to them in Olympia, take a look at the ag aspect as well as just overall economic development needs. We're losing water on our farm in a way that's a huge challenge. We should have water on 
creeks that have run for 150 years that are now dry and part of it's a management issue and oversight. And that's something I'd love to be able to work on and champion our region for in Olympia. There was an audience question about that very thing, about uh, water management, and so you have very deftly answered it. Um, Francis, I'll just maybe put the question a little more generally to you. Um, How can Olympia protect our farmers here at the state level? I think the state government should... The state government should always work with the local state stakeholders and local municipalities and then assess, understand the need here locally, and then bring that information forward to the congressional delegation when trade agreements are being negotiated or debated. Uh, I also believe that the continued effort to improve the relationship between the state departments of agriculture and the federal USDA would, would, you know, would increase trust and I think move negotiations along more efficiently and provide for more transparency on both sides of that equation, which can only be good for the people here in the uh, district. We are running very, very short on time here, and I do want to get to some individual questions here. But first, before we do, I'll just ask each of you, uh, the 16th district is... It has glimmers of purple at this point. Walla Walla and Pasco are starting to trend blue, but this is still very much a Republican stronghold. I want to just philosophically how you think about the challenge of running and winning as a Democrat in the 16th. Francis, let's stay with you on this. I think one of my, I I believe my strongest, my strongest um, argument in winning the red Republicans, the conservatives or the independents in this district is to continue to focus on my knowledge and life experience in healthcare. Healthcare is not a partisan issue. The health and the mental health of yourself and your family is real. And I understand healthcare. I understand it from a variety of perspectives. And I can speak to people about cost. I can speak to people about access and quality. And I feel like with that knowledge, I can go to Olympia and help my colleagues there to understand the impact of the laws that are passed related to healthcare. So that is that that would be my um, that would be my means to open up conversations. And once you start a conversation, things can who knows who knows things can Mm -hmm. evolve. All right. Uh, same question to you, Carly. Uh, we know the challenges that uh, you're all facing right now, running as Democrats in the 16th. Uh, how do you how do you run and win as a Democrat? So I've actually had the pleasure of working on a few different campaigns um, over the last few years as I've been uh, involved locally. Some of them have been partisan and some have been nonpartisan. And I have steadily watched uh, the percentages change. Every year I have seen the Democratic, even if we lose, our Democratic numbers are getting higher and higher and higher. And um, I know that the census is still out. So this information is like nearly 10 years old. But in like Pasco, for example, you mentioned that it's a bluer area. Um, You know, the average human being in Pasco uh, at the 2010 census was a 26-year-old Latina. And uh, so that uh, there's groups that weren't able to vote 10 years ago, weren't able to vote two years ago that are now voting. I have been to several events um, uh, that have been Black Lives Matter events where registering to vote is one of the most important things that they're doing where they're going through and every single individual person is asked, are you registered to vote? Are you registered to vote? Uh, because it, it is, we're going through a lot of stuff as a state, as a country, and it's drawing in people, I believe, who wouldn't normally want to vote, energizing them, and being authentic and true to your campaign point. Um, I think that's how Democrats win. And I will just ask you the same question, Danielle. Um, And I I know that you have worked for both a Republican and a Democratic administration. I'm wondering if that gives you a little bit of a leg up on this question as to how to run as a Democrat in 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 a red district. Well, I think it is also just the answer of how you run in any district is 
you have to run. This is the first time in multiple electoral cycles that we've had three Democrats running in this race. It is uh, the first time that we also have fantastic county candidates in Franklin County and Benton County. And so I just want to say a huge thank you to all the people who've been knocking on doors and turning out for elections in Eastern Washington across the board, our county party folks and our state party folks who believe that we have to run races in every single place. And we can engage our neighbors and be seen. You know, a lot of people have said to me, I'm a Democrat. And they're hiding it because they don't think there are any Democrats in Eastern Washington. There are all kinds of Democrats. And there's all kinds of independents who believe that good people showing up for good government matters. And it doesn't matter what your political parties are if you listen to people, if you learn about the issues, and if you care and you try to make a difference. So I just want to stress how important it is for more people to keep running for office and for all of us to vote and turn out for this August 4th primary. I'm the one of the three of us who actually could get knocked out on August 4th. There are I'm running against two Republicans, so only two of us will get through. Usually the Democratic numbers are strong enough that I should get through, but it only matters if people vote. So I'd be really honored to earn people's support. And we need help with volunteers. We need help with donations. So really encourage people to get involved and help us really engage these districts and let people know that we're proud to be running out here and to have these conversations. Well, as you can see in the chat bar, you're getting a lot of plaudits for what you're saying. Um, I will just ask the three of you, we are at eight o'clock right now. I had some, uh, just a couple of questions lined up for each of you that were specific to you and your experience. And I'm wondering if you have maybe five or 10 minutes to to stick around. Is, is, is that okay? Everybody good with that? Okay, well, Danielle, let's just stay with you then. As, as we have touched on, you have an extraordinary background. Uh, as we mentioned, you served in the Bush administration with then-Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. You were in the Obama administration with the National Security Council. And I'm wondering how you see your deep experience at the federal level informing your work at the state level. And, uh, and also, I think a lot of people are asking, why did it take you so long to decide to run? <laughs> Well, I've definitely just had this commitment to service and I love serving our country and as I said, moved back and served and thought about politics, wasn't sure if that was the route, but I think in the last many years, a lot of us have said, we care about our democracy. We want to stand up and help in whatever ways we can. And on my last ballot, there were 10 uncontested races. And I don't like complaining about problems that I don't try to fix. So I knew I could fix that one by running. And when I thought about my perspective, having global experience, national experience, statewide experience with philanthropy and deep local roots in Eastern Washington, I knew that that would be valuable. I know that diplomats know how to negotiate, listen to people and find solutions. We certainly need more of that in Olympia. Frankly, when you live in Eastern Washington, Olympia feels like a foreign country. (laughs) So sending someone who is trained to be an uh, ambassador and representative there could be very helpful for our districts. The other piece is that I also bring that cross-cultural competence that I know how to work with people of difference, whether that's their philosophical views, different cultures and languages, and I have deep respect for that. And I think we need to be listening and engaging everyone in our communities, not only some people in our communities. So I have that broad depth of experience that I would love to get to serve again in this new capacity and really show people how amazing our district is in Eastern Washington, how proud we are to live here, and how much we want this region to continue to thrive. Well, we can see it on the sign right behind you, but let us know where people can get in touch. Uh, And you mentioned very briefly that you had uh, needs for volunteers. Of course, every campaign needs money. That's right. And I'm actually only 21 new donors away from reaching a thousand donors to my campaign. So if you even just have $5 and want to donate today, it would be huge. And I know we're posting the link here. If people want to give to all three of our campaigns, there's one easy way to do that. You can learn more about my campaign at garbyreser.com. Again, I'd be very honored to earn your vote, whether that's uh, if you're in the district on or before, before is good, August 4th, or voting with your time and your energy as well. We have a number of our volunteers, I know, participating today, and I'm so grateful for all the people who 
believing in and bringing us to this really historic moment and a chance to flip this seat for the first time in two decades. I will have it in the show notes for people, but because podcasting and radio are audio mediums, uh, could you please spell uh, your uh, URL out for people? Yes, it's a good reminder. www.garbyreser.com. Daniel Garbyreser, thank you so much. Um, Francis Quarrell, you know, you mentioned that uh, you have, uh, we, we talked about this earlier, how your work as a nurse, uh, you feel would translate directly into your work as a legislator. But I'm also curious, you spent a lot of time as, as an administrator. And uh, maybe tell us a little bit about how you feel that work can transfer directly over to the role of legislator. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I spent the first 10 years out of um, college um, providing direct patient care. I worked in three different health systems in the country. I worked in Boise. I went back to Baltimore and worked at Johns Hopkins and then came back to Washington and was at Harborview at the University of Washington um, when I met Ron and we got married. And then in 1993, um, we moved to Walla Walla. It was very quickly after arriving home for me that I accepted a position as the uh, Director of Surgical Services at St. Mary. That is everything to do before, during, and after a patient has an operation. And the 22 years that I spent in that capacity, I managed the labor budget for multiple departments. I had up to 120 people reporting to me. I worked with uh, uh, a couple different labor unions that represented the nurses that were in my departments. I had the operational budget, the capital budget, and I was responsible for many large and very, very large and small remodel projects at the um, at St. Mary. What I learned from the first 10 years was really how to listen and hear people's needs. And then the 22 years I spent as a director in, in management, I learned how to manage teams and groups and organize and bring people together and really take the most divergent group of people and help them understand regulations, help them understand new, new uh, equipment and new processes. And then in the, in the, once our youngest graduated from college, I made the transition um, and accepted a quality position. And that too is insightful to understand what is going on in healthcare, but also how to uh, listen again to people who are dissatisfied or unhappy or experiencing great grief and anger about something that's happened to them at the in the hospital. When I transitioned into this quality position, it's then I started um, becoming more involved in the local community civic activities. I, I spent time attending neighbors in the winter warming center at a local church. I participated in the Bicycle Pedestrian Advisory Council, learning more about differently abled people and their access to the simple, you know, simple matter of getting onto a sidewalk or understanding if you're visually impaired where the sidewalk ends. And I became involved with the local political parties here uh, in Walla Walla. I was involved in the 16 campaign and I was very involved in the 18 campaign. And in 2018, I, I heard a lot of people tell me as we canvassed for the local candidates that they had concerns about healthcare. And that was the spark when I thought, you know, if I can bring together a lot of different people and I can help them understand about healthcare. I think I have a I have a place here. I have the time. My children are all grown and adults. I have four beautiful grandchildren. And I have the desire now to help the community that I've lived 49 out of my 59 years in. So with that, I uh, would like to go to Olympia and use that skill set. If you're interested in um, learning more about our campaign, it's www.electfrancis.com. And I will remind you that Francis is with an E. All right. Francis Quattle, thank you so much. Um, Carly Coburn, you're going to get the final word tonight. 
we know that disability rights are a very big part of your platform. What if you could talk just a little bit about your personal experience and some of the work that you would like to do in Olympia on this particular front? Well, as Francis mentioned, you know, uh, sometimes there's problems with something as simple as crossing a road. I know that I live in the 16th and right outside uh, my apartment, which is, you know, just right back here, there's a bus stop and there's a good, this, uh, you know, inch or two drop, gravel, and then the bus stop. It is in no way accessible. There's no way to access this bus stop if you are a wheelchair user. Um, so my own personal experiences, I, uh, when we first moved to the Tri-Cities, I was house and bed bound for uh, about two years. I had a, uh, I have a long-term inner injury that uh, from when I was in Taekwondo, a, a martial art that uh, causes uh, one of my discs to chronically herniate and pinch a nerve. Um, Afterwards, I had surgery, and after I recovered from surgery, that's when I got involved with everything. Um, one of the things I would really love to do is to retackle the uh, bill that went through and was passed for uh, um, paying pe- disabled folks subminimum wage. I know people that you would never think they'd be given subminimum wage. They are, were paid subminimum, subminimum wage. The bill was altered and eventually was passed um, so that it only applied to uh, state or federal employees. And I was very disappointed because uh, one of the first things I did as a state committee member was I stayed up all night writing a resolution uh, for the Washington State Democrats to support the ending of subminimum wage. And all the state committee members, it passed unanimously. There was not a single person who stood up to argue with me. And so, and I got messages from other disability rights activists who were like, I had no idea this was coming. You've helped me so much so that I can go talk to my congressperson about, or my uh, state legislator about this, my state senator about this. And it was really unfortunate because it was Democrats who helped kill that bill make it weaker and so I really want to champion that um, because disabled people are people and this law that allows subminimum wage is from the 1930s and there's nothing from the 1930s that we want to be doing anymore so that is that is truly one of my biggest passion points is that I want to make sure that And I would like to try and see if our state in some way could make do what New York is doing, which is trying to get it so that people who are on Medicaid or Medicare don't lose their benefits and can get married because we don't have marriage equality right now in our country. Disabled people frequently are not allowed to get married. And my own spouse and I have even considered divorce because of my disabilities and me needing more assistance. So those are the two things I would really like to work on in some way. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, and thank you for all the work that you do in your community. Um, I will just ask you before I let you go where people can learn more about your campaign. Oh, yes. Um, so I... Just shared it in the chat. They can go to www.electcarly, C-A-R-L-Y, Coburn, C-O-B, like boy, U-R-N, like Nancy, 16LD.com. Thank you again to Danielle Garvey-Reeser, Francis Quattle, and Carly Coburn. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Andrzejewski with Indivisible Tacoma. And a big thank you to Louise Pate for her help. A reminder to join us on Tuesday, July 28th for a town hall with candidates for the 29th District. For more information on that, you can go to the Washington State Indivisible Podcast Community on 
Facebook. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.